Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Glad you tuned in. Adam Andrews with you once again, joined as always by the rest of the Center for Lit crew, including my wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And his lovely wife, Emily. Hello. Thanks for being here, you guys. Let's get right down to another wonderful literary discussion. As those of you listening may have noticed from our last few episodes, Bibliophiles has taken a topical turn of late. I mean, literature is such an inexhaustible source of great ideas, you know, beautifully turned and worked and developed that it seems like you can literally just pick one at random and there'll be world-class examples lying around in piles. And once you realize the sheer magnitude, the thought of approaching it systematically can be a little overwhelming, I think. Where do you start besides, hey, that one looks interesting. I think I'll read it. And so this is where I think a topical approach to literature can be helpful. And in Bibliophiles, we've had some good conversations recently about specific ideas as they're found in the great books, love and beauty, evil and suffering, grace and mercy, human nature, human community. Obviously, the list goes on indefinitely, but well, anyway, I wanted to continue that sort of topical trend today by throwing out another topic that's really more of a genre, not a topic so much, and that is fantasy. Fairy tales and fantasy novels, to be more specific. Fantasy novels. I mean, these stories have always captivated readers, as long as there have been readers. And for that reason alone, I think fantasy stories deserve consideration by you gathered literary dignitaries. But I'll go further. I think that in our contemporary climate, saturated as it is with fantasy tales in print and maybe even more dramatically on the screen, I think there's questions surrounding this genre that cry out for special attention. And so what I thought we'd do today is ask a few of those questions and bat them around as we are wont to do on bibliophiles and hopefully, you know, get into a heated disagreement or two. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think a heated disagreement or two would be appropriate. Do you not? That shouldn't be too hard. I don't think so. <laughs> we usually fall into that pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we could have one right now. <laughs> anyway, I think that the, the subject, the general subject of fairy tales and fantasy is such a good topic that that alone would be enough to get me hyped up for today's discussion. I'm really ready to talk about, you know, Lord of the Rings and other titles and the book that must not be named or whatever you want. (laughs) But before we get down to it, I have another surprise for you guys. And that is that it is my great pleasure to welcome Andrew Pudawa as a special guest on Bibliophiles today. Andrew is the director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, whose materials have helped thousands of homeschoolers around the world for, I don't know, nearly 30 years. He can correct me if that number is wrong. He is well-known across the globe as a speaker at conferences and seminars, and if you've never heard him speak, you have, until this very day, 
been deprived of a great pleasure. <laughs> Andrew can hold forth on any topic from fort building to the inner logic of a good joke. And he manages, <laughs> it's true, wait till you hear. And he manages to encourage and inspire parents and teachers with every word. I'm an old veteran of Andrew Putawa speeches, and they are not to be missed. No, it's true. Missy and I met Andrew back in 2003, uh, before Center for Lit was even a thing. And to be perfectly frank, it was his encouragement and practical help that allowed us to get our own vision of literary education off the ground in some very tangible ways. And as I've said before, and will always be fond of saying, we at Center for Lit are happy to be permanently in his debt. So, Andrew, welcome to Bibliophiles. <laughs> you are too kind with that introduction, Adam, but it is a great pleasure to be with you uh, whenever we meet on the circuit and virtually here right now. And uh, this is an exciting topic uh, for me as well. I uh, have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about fantasy literature and I'm uh, hoping to, yeah, get in some arguments here. That's good. That's good. I hope you brought your gloves because we're, we're not going to – that sweet introduction notwithstanding, we're not going to hold anything back on we're you. We're not going to go easy on you. <laughs> well, let's just – if you – if uh, by your own admission, have spent some time thinking about this topic, let me just start off with a general question. How would you define the genre? I mean, I mentioned already it's more of a genre than a topic. Uh, properly speaking, what, what would you say makes something a, a, a work of fantasy literature or a fairy tale? What qualifies a story for this genre? Well, I think the the first fantasy literature was fairy tales, and the development of that as a genre of modern literature is kind of the result of people never having wanted to leave the fantastical world of childhood fairy tales and yet you feel you know some people feel a little silly reading uh you know fairy tales to themselves and so then they have children that gives them an excuse to read more fairy tales <laughs> and uh then their children grow up and they have to look around for books that are like fairy tales and uh their children have already discovered all the good ones and of course, anyone who writes fantasy literature today is following in the footsteps of, of the greats, you know, George MacDonald and Lewis and Tolkien. Um, those, those are rare finds, and yet a lot of people have done a lot of interesting things with that whole genre of fantasy. So what makes fantasy? I suppose that it has to be fantastical, that it has to have elements of the supernatural, of the... Um, imaginary things that we don't see in ordinary life uh things that we we maybe would like to imagine uh and when we read about them they become more real in our imagination and so it's kind of a you know we desire the fantastical we, our human nature desires the supernatural and so we're chasing after that wherever we can for some people in my case you know it took me into new age religions and kind of the uh you know the eastern mystical tradition as a young person uh for others you know it it they are attracted to those lands where there's uh wizards and elves and normal people who get caught up in adventures hmm. chesterton wrote uh i think you know very clearly in his essay, The Ethics of Elfland, which was a chapter in Orthodoxy, I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, about the importance of 
the fairy tale, of the fantasy, of the legend, of the myth. And uh, one thing I've kind of thought about is, you know, it's hard to believe something which you cannot imagine. I'm not even sure you can believe something that you can't imagine to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so when we read, you know, the ancient, ancient fantasy stories, some of those were probably true. The one about Moses throwing down his staff that turns into a snake that eats the other guy's staffs that turned into a snake. <laughs> I mean, really, that's got to be one of the earliest, quote, you know, fantasy literature stories out there. The, one of the earliest examples of uh, an element of supernatural working its way into literature, yes? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, I was just just listening to a talk. Maybe it was you. Sometimes I secretly listen to your talks as well. <laughs> well, I'm flattered. <laughs> but um, whether it was you or someone else, was making the point that a myth is not something that is not true. A myth is something that is bigger than life. Mm -hmm. ah. And we, we tend to, I think, misdefine that and say, oh, it's a myth, meaning it isn't true. Whereas, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it was uh, Lewis said, you know, Christianity is a myth that happens to be true. Yeah, right. right. That it's a larger than life phenomenon with the supernatural at every turn. So I think we are, are craving for connection with the supernatural is one thing that draws us to the, the fantasy genre. Yeah, I agree. I, I love your reference to Lewis. Um, Didn't you like his reference to my talk, though, too? Oh, oh that too. Okay. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Not to overlook that. <laughs> Thank you. No, I had read um, over the years at one point in time that Lewis talked about um, this genre as being an opportunity uh, towards evangelism, that being one of its its greatest um, allures for him. He thought that because of materialism, um, the world needed to be remythologized before it could be evangelized. Mm. Mm. That because people no longer no longer looked into the world and saw um, the evidence of the supernatural, um, mythology and fantasy literature could begin to awaken their imagination so that it could contain things beyond the material world. Mm. If I were writing fantasy literature, that's why I would do it because I have. I've read Chesterton and Lewis on that subject, and I sort of agree with them. I wonder what you guys think, and this is a question for Andrew, but also for the rest of you. If you were to speak for the authors of fairy tales and fantasy that you have read, authors that you know about, how would you state the the goal of the art form? <clears throat> I mean, at Center for Lit, we talk about all the time, what is the author trying to say? We want to get on the author's team and get on the author's page and think his thoughts after him before we enter into a conversation with him. So if you could do that for fairy tale authors, for fantasy authors, what is it that they're trying to do from your perspective? Well, I don't know that they're trying to do anything different than any author um, just because they're writing fantasy. Uh, it's possible that the genre of fantasy allows them to do certain things more easily but an author could could have the desire to embed moral education in his stories, and you could do that in Old West, you could do it in historical fiction, you could do mm -hmm. it in fantasy, 
And so if you look at, at uh, authors uh, like George MacDonald, you really feel, aha, you know, there's this moral fiber that is, that is the stuff from which this story exists, and we're drawn into the world because it is fantasy, and so that moral fiber, you know, becomes part of the experience, and it's more meaningful, and it's more lasting. Um, but you could look at other fantasy writers who perhaps don't have that quite of noble goal. They may have the goal simply to spin a good story and entertain or capitalize on a trend mm-hmm. or um, make a, a contrast against something else. Uh, ah. So uh, I don't know that we could say uh, that fantasy authors have a particular purpose that's different than any other author, uh, but I think they have some tools that other authors don't have. Ah. Well, and at least you could say that um, the genre, because it entertains supernatural elements, is ripe for uh, conversations about supernatural ideas. Sure. Right? Doesn't just foster the conversation about human virtue, but goes beyond it to talk about the soul and the existence of God and all of those larger eternal questions. Yeah. Yeah. They find a pretty ready home in that particular genre. And, you know, the different authors, because they don't all share the same worldview, um, have a variety of answers, just like whenever you read literature, as you mentioned, Andrew. Um, so you, it really does depend on which author uh, you're reading. Or, and I think maybe that, maybe that's a good, good idea that an, an author is doing what an author always does. If he happens to be an author of fantasy tales, he has a, a perhaps a unique set of tools at his disposal. I always heard, maybe we can toss this idea out and debunk it or keep it or whatever, but I always heard that a, the author of a fantasy novel is trying to comment on the world that he lives in by creating an imaginary world and making an obvious comparison hmm. by saying, here's a world either completely destroyed by this problem that I want to talk about or free altogether from this problem that I want to talk about. See the difference and there's the moral punch of a fantasy story. Is that a decent idea or is that uh, something I learned that I shouldn't have? Well, I think think it's a great observation. Uh, It makes me think of the nature of parable and allegory uh, as being timeless. So here is a truth that exists. It exists outside of any particular time, place, or circumstance. And so when it enters in as a a fable or a myth or a parable or a fairy tale, it is a a self-evident, timeless truth that exists on its own. Mm. And then we have access to it from any time in any direction, Mm. Uh, as opposed to, you know, here's the story that happens during, you know, World War II. You get a little distracted with the history and the details and the characters and, you know, which characters were real and which weren't and all that. If you're in a fairy tale, the whole thing is not true. So therefore the whole thing can be more true. Yeah. That reminds me. That's a cool idea. That reminds me of reading GK Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, which is, Mm -hmm. which is very embedded in the late 19th century England that he was writing it and even has elements of current political issues that mean nothing to me. Not English, don't live in the late 19th century. The issues have come and gone. And it's embedded in that story to the degree that it's a little distracting, like you said, Andrew. But then there's all these fantastical elements of the story that intrude. And 
they intrude more and more until they finally take the story over and it's completely fantastical. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that I start to relate to it. Maybe for that very reason that it's no longer, uh, you know, embedded in a particular time and place. Yeah. You know, uh, the subtitle to animal farm is a fairy tale. So wow. Orwell chose that world of, you know, talking horses and, and communist totalitarian pigs, you know, as a way to, in a timeless fashion, put those truths uh, that he saw clearly um, the dangers, uh, if mm. you will, of, of an atheist communist worldview and government system. But, uh, but you could say, well, Russia's done and, and that's all over, but Animal Farm lives forever. Uh, yeah, yeah maybe. because human nature certainly hasn't right. changed, and the principles that guard liberty and freedom haven't gone away either. So by placing it in a, a counter world, you do preserve the actual heart of the study and take it beyond that historical limitation. Mm-hmm. So maybe Orwell is doing exactly what we're describing, what Andrew mentioned using the unique set of tools at his disposal as an author of quote unquote fairy tales mm-hmm. in order to make a comment about his contemporary culture in such a way that it, that his comments are universal and apply to all times and all places. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in, in mind of another connection that we've made in a previous episode of bibliophiles. And that is the, the, um, I don't know if it's universal, but we're sort of hinting or moving towards seeing it as a universal urge of all artists to faithfully represent the reality of the world around them so as to foster a community of fellow sufferers that artists in, in, in all the arts, but in literature, maybe in particular are reaching out to their fellow human beings saying this world is filled with various kinds of pain and suffering that are common to us all behold. And in their work of art, create a community of sufferers who can say, yes, I identify. And um, I think Ian and Emily, you guys have been kind of strong, strongly suggesting that this is a common theme in literature and a common goal of the artist. How does what we've said so far about a fantasy as a genre connect with that? Are fantasy authors doing the same thing? Yeah. Oh, I absolutely think they are. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me as, as Andrew was saying just a second ago is the capacity of fantasy to be more true because it's less true, which I think is a really cool way of putting it. Um, and it puts me in mind of one of my very favorites, the wind in the willows, right? Full of talking animals, this little world on a river. And it's obviously untrue because well, it's a rat and a mole that have these, these human characteristics and are carrying on a friendship. But I think that Kenneth Graham is doing precisely what we're talking about there as he paints. Um, there's a, there's a particular chapter where, the rat is, is struggling against this almost unconquerable desire to throw his life up in the air and to um, leave all of his friendships behind and go south for the winter, which has never happened to him before. And it's only the strength of his friendship that saves him. And th- this imagination that he has of what his life would be like if he, if he ended the current one and, and set out on his own to have an adventure is common to all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think there are times where we're all possessed of a desire to to leave all of our responsibilities and all the things that make our lives everyday and mundane and go off and have an adventure. It's one of the reasons we love to read fantasy, right? We all want to be the ordinary people swept up on one of these great quests. But there's another chapter in the story where Graham identifies that particular longing by having 
the nature god Pan actually encounter these characters. And it's this, this swelling, beautiful moment where they're, they're summoned by this music and it's entrancing to them. And as the god leaves, Graham talks about the greatest gift that he is always careful to bestow, which is the gift of forgetfulness. And he says the god bestows this gift so that all the rest of their days wouldn't be overshadowed by this memory so that mirth would, would be allowed to re-enter their lives. And the point he's making there is just perfect for this discussion. What he's saying is the seat of real joy and contentment, which is what we're all looking for when we turn to a good book, the seat of all of that joy is in the everyday. It's in the details of our lives that are, that are here in the present. It's in our friendships and our relationships. It's in our lives. And I, I don't know, I think it's, an, it's a spectacular work of fantasy specifically because it wrenches us out of our everyday perspective and then points our heads back at that and says, oh. see, look, mm. look what you have. Recognize oh. what's, what's actually present. Huh. So in a way that... Uh, yeah, Chesterton... Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Uh, Chesterton said something like, um, the ordinary man has always been sane because he's always been a mystic. Mm. Um, that... that mm. he, you know, like you're saying, when you have the ordinary and then you have the window into the supernatural, whereas the the person who's trying to be a mystic, uh, things don't have that same magic. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know exactly how this idea fits in, but there's something about living in that universe as well. So as Ian was saying, you want to you want to go on that journey. You want to have that adventure. Um, my daughter Genevieve spent probably 18 months of her life when she was seven years old just reading Narnia. She would read the whole series, and then she would go back and start the whole series again, and then she would just read it all the way through. I mean, she had all the stories memorized. I guess what she wanted to do was just live there for yes. as long as she could. I remember yeah, that. She and, uh, I remember we, used, we, we were having conversation. Do you think we should make her read something else? You know, <laughs> or, or is this what her soul is, is craving? Uh, so there is that, that being in the other world as well as wanting to have that adventure, just, just living there. What do you think, guys? Is that, I mean, I completely identify with the idea. In fact, I identify with Genevieve personally, having done that a few <laughs> times myself when I was young with the Narnia books. Yeah. I completely identify with that. Uh, is it our place to, to comment on whether that's a healthy impulse, a healthy urge? Well, probably do you think it is? depends on the kind of world we're talking about. I mean, in the case of the, the Narnia tales, C.S. Lewis wins. He has actually uh, reached his goal. That's why he wrote, was to essentially foster a love for the things of that world, which are essentially the things of the Christian ideals, right? right? The Christian universe. And if he created a love and a longing in her heart for Aslan and for the things of true Narnia, then she's already predisposed, as Lewis would have wanted her to be, to embrace Christianity, to embrace the true Lord and Savior, whose name is not Aslan, but Jesus, right? And to enjoy life in his kingdom. Yeah. And we can't, we can't see that kingdom right now. And in a sense, the Narnia tales give us some goggles to peer into it, imaginatively speaking. They 
they put Lewis put some some clothes on the ideas of the kingdom. He he dressed them so that we can see them. He gave them faces, right? Mm-hmm. Bodies, shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that our imagination could grab hold of what is unseen. I'm reminded of that Bible verse um, that tells us that the unseen is more real than the seen. Yeah. And we don't live like that right. in this day and age. Right. We, we tend to, even those of us who embrace Christianity, have been enculturated largely by scientism. Right. Mm -hmm. By this idea that what you see is what you get. All that's real is is what is testable in a laboratory experiment. And the idea that there is reality that is that is more material because of its immaterial nature is sort of a paradox. Yeah. But I wonder you you said that uh, materialism is rampant. However, we've been talking a lot about the Oxford Christians, right? Tolkien and Lewis and um McDonald also wrote from a Christian perspective, but what about today? It's fantasy is becoming really rampant again, and it's not necessarily Christian. So I wonder what you guys think about that. Yeah, I was hoping somebody would toss that idea in because because uh, yeah, I think it's true that Lewis uh, wrote f- uh, from a different world for a different world. I mean, it's sixty years ago and counting. Not a very different world. I mean, basically, we can say that. Our world is the, um, I guess it's it's the full flowering of the world that he stood on the threshold of, right? He saw this developing. Right, but what I meant was that he he wrote about a fantasy world that is shot through with Christian themes. Uh, maybe not so much the the uh, the works of the Poland current yeah the current YA fantasy writer. I mean, Andrew, what do you say to, to Emily's question? What about books that are not as obviously pointing in a in a good uh, direction. Well, you know, the the old analogy is literature is kind of like food, right? There's there's the best possible, you know, grass-fed organic beef cooked perfectly by a, a skilled chef with side dishes of vegetables that are, you know, the the fullness of nutrition <laughs> that are going to feed your body. Uh, and then there's McDonald's. Um, you know, we we can we can kind of say yes. You know, there are the great fantasy books. And then there's a lot of stuff that you know it'll it'll feed you to some degree. There may be some hidden toxins, some hidden poisons. That you <laughs> you know you don't necessarily want them, but they're not going to kill you. Um, I don't think that you'd find too many people who would want to go and. And read the Twilight series again and again and again. Right, right. Because, you know, it's not doing for you what Narnia does for you. Right. And But I, I guess I'm thinking, what is that? I mean, um, <clears throat> I, I probably would, would put money on the same outcome that you just described. Someone who goes to read the Twilight series once doesn't isn't called back and back and back for some deep soul level reason. What What would be the reason that would draw you back and back and back? Well, it it would be the fact that it it is continuing to nurture your deeper desire. Now, I suppose, you know, there are some people who get so accustomed to junk food that they actually would prefer that mm-hmm. over the, you know, higher quality, well-prepared, better for you 
food and and i think that can happen with entertainment as yeah. well i think it can happen with literature people read junk literature because we all crave story even even the most base and mundane of human beings crave story mm. that's what drives the biggest industry in the country which is you know entertainment right so we all want stories the question is what stories are feeding us what are we accustomed to um i picked up the book uh, ben-hur uh, mainly because i saw the movie and i was curious i hadn't read the book for so long um and i, I you know ben-hur is just like this super dense 11 course meal of philosophy and history and I really just wanted the story, you know, <laughs> I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to bite off Ben-Hur, you know. Um, so, you know, there's a time and a place for all that. And, it, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that kind of that old idea of, okay, there's whole stories. That's where good is good and good wins and bad is bad and bad loses. And it's clear. There's no doubt you, the reader, are rooting for the good and good wins and all is right with the world. And we, we love that story. You know, we want to hear that story again and again and again and again. And so whatever form that comes in, even if it's pablum, will be some some level of nutrition for us. Ah. Uh, but then when that story can happen with the richness of the backdrop and the fabric, uh, the Christian fabric, the truth fabric element. That's that's what separates, in my mind, the, you know, the, well, I, I was going to pick specifically, I might as well say it, the Percy Jackson stuff <laughs> uh, from Narnia, right? I mean, right. it's the fabric of what it is made of that is the whole difference. So do you think there's a legitimate... Do you think that... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Emily. I want to hear you talk anyway. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask, do you think that it, it's a hopeful sign in our culture that people are reaching for fantasy, even if it's not as rich as the fantasy that has come in the past, the fact that we're headed in that direction, and that's what people are craving? I just wonder if that says something, maybe not necessarily about our time, but about the human soul, maybe an or, awakening of some kind. Well, I think you're you're making a lot of sense, really, because... What you're noticing is a craving of the people for something beyond the material, right? Uh, an openness to supernatural elements, a longing for something supernatural. Like Andrew mentioned initially, his daughter was feeling. Yeah. Um, so it, it's inherently hopeful that that part of their humanity, that element of the human soul, is alive and well. Writers and readers alike, maybe, huh? I think so. I, I was thinking about the the qualitative difference that you were pointing out, Andrew, the, the difference between what you call junk food and true nourishment. And, you know, when you're looking at quality, sometimes it's unfortunately true, or I don't know, maybe it's hard to know whether to call it fortunate or unfortunate, but sometimes the Lord grants the gift of fine writing skill to those that don't actually acknowledge him mm. or work towards his purposes. And you get skilled authors who are writing in the genre of fantasy, but don't have much of value to say, what shall we do with them? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, that is a good question. It, 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 it's always back to then, what then shall we read? Um, I, I, one of my favorite quotes from Lewis is, 
you know, if you don't read good books, you'll read bad ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you don't listen to good music, you'll listen to bad music. If you don't pursue aesthetic, you'll fall into the sensual. And so it is important that we make the choices because our time is limited and we we have to choose for ourselves. We have to influence our families and students, our children, uh, you know, whoever we we end up having uh, a mentorship or, or leadership role with. And uh, so I think it does matter. And I think there's a lot of books that really aren't worth reading, even though they may be fun and interesting uh, fantasy. At the same time, Andrew, would you agree with Emily's suggestion a minute ago that the prevalence in today's culture, maybe even the growing prevalence of fantastical elements in fiction, even, you know, witches and wizards and wands and dragons and spells and enchantments. Would you call that a hopeful sign? Um, well, well, you know me, Adam. I am the opposite of an optimist. So I need more than just hopeful signs. <laughs> I was I just need, twisting like, your arm. In your face, this is absolutely good. Um, I, I guess, you know, I look at, you know, the twilight phenomenon, for example, as as not hopeful because that's a whole lot of people reading somewhat disordered stories with very twisted archetypes. Um, and so, you know, I, that doesn't give me much hope. Right. Um, I find I find the dystopian fiction world um, more interesting in that that type of fantasy, that futurist dystopian, here's where we're headed type of drive, maybe a little more hopeful in that people are, you know, waking up to some degree. They, mm. you know, they read 1984 in 1940 and said, aha, you know, if we don't change direction, this is where we'll be. Now we can look at the Hunger Games and say, if we don't change, perhaps this is where we'll be. Ah. We may or may not change, but at least we're thinking about it. Right, right, <laughs> right. So maybe there's a there's a purpose, maybe even a good purpose for that, or may, or maybe I, I guess back to the question, maybe that is something of a hopeful sign that there is that there are writers out there thinking those thoughts and readers out there thinking about them as well. And even still, um, you've got this picture of man that's just that just endures. I mean, as I think about the Hunger Games in particular, they're gladiator contests. I mean, we might as well have been back in ancient Rome, right. but still it's a reflection on the culture today and the violence in, in entertainment and all of Postman's ideas creeping into the narrative account that she gives, right? The amusing ourselves to death, quite literally. Yeah. Um, and there's just not a dime's worth of difference really between the culture that is presented in the Hunger Games and the culture of ancient Rome with all of its pagan festivals and, um, you know, all the pageantry in the Colosseum. And I think you're right, except I want to jump in and change the subject with an argumentative point. I actually, and you guys can assault me on this, and I don't care, I'm going to stand on this ground. I don't think the Hunger Games is either a fantasy or a fairy tale. I don't think you can qualify it as either one of those things if you use the definition that we've been talking about. Because no supernatural. Which is a world that is shot through with the supernatural. Because it's one of the most thoroughly materialistic stories that I've ever read. Okay, fair enough. We got there through the segue about dystopian fiction. Hey, I can segue if I want to. We'll give you, we... <laughs> no, I agree. I agree with you, Adam. There, There is nothing supernatural about that world. And... So it is a it is a completely different 
genre. I, I agree with you on that. I guess I was thinking, what is it that gives me hope? Okay, um, right, right. About what people, what, what are people reading? Um, well, you know, there is something about about magic that is eternally attractive. Yeah. I mean, like I said, from Moses did that really tricky thing with a staff. <laughs> um, and Harry Potter is doing his tricky things with a wand. And it's been, you know, an eternal fascination yes. with what what is magic. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's uh, It can be divine. It can be demonic. Um, how do we as non-magical creatures – Muggles, I think, is the word. <laughs> yeah, the, the contemplation uh, of that uh, is is timeless. Why why, do, why are we so interested in magic? Mm. Mm. I'd like to know. I think that's a great question. What about what about Harry you know, Potter? When you're a kid. You... Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Well... I'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I finished your thought. Well, I was just saying, you know, when when we're kids. We, we will often daydream about having magical powers. Um, if I could, you know, be invisible, I could do this. If I could make that thing move just by thinking about it. If right. I could read someone's mind and hear what they're thinking. If I could do all these things, I would get power. So there's a, I guess hmm. the attraction to magic is the same kind of the attraction to power. Um, and I'll I'll segue right into Harry Potter there for you, Adam. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the biggest differences between, say, the world of Tolkien and the world of Harry Potter is that in Tolkien's world, only the supernatural archetypes have magical powers. Mm -hmm. So uh, elves are archetypes of angels. Gandalf is an archetype of, of an archangel type they come and go they act they do magic they they throw things around and you have no idea how they do it <laughs> nor is it lawful for you to know how they do it it just happens it's supernatural intervention it's grace it's evil but it's not human okay whereas in harry potter it's the it's the people you identify with you know harry and hermione and the gang that's who you want to be like. So you imagine in Harry Potter as a reader doing the magic, being like that. Whereas in, in Tolkien, you can't, you can't aspire to be Gandalf. You can't even aspire to be Elrond or Galadriel. The best you're going to do is Aragorn, and that's if you're really cocky. <laughs> the rest of us are stuck there being so, – right. um, so, Amen. So there's a it, – it's a – I think those two books are interesting when you juxtapose them and say, you know, how, what is the effect on the imagination of the reader? Mm. What is the effect of, in particular, the magic and the, the fantastical elements on the imagination of the reader? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. Just to push back a little bit on what it, what it, where it sounds like you're headed with your interpretation of the book that shall not be named – one of the similarities that I find between the characters we identify with in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and in Rowling's Harry Potter is that the presence of this magic or this special burden they have to carry around in their lives for Harry, the, the connection that he bears to, to the evil Lord and for Frodo, the ring itself, both of those things take an unhealthy toll on their lives. 
it's a mm -hmm. it's a realistic if you will burden to bear rather than this special trick they have in their pocket that they can pull out and be cooler than all the other kids what do you say to that oh i think that's very true um the bearing of the burden you know come let us suffer together you know what uh, adam started out with that theme of of writers create a world where we can commiserate. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's very true. It's one of the things that makes the Potter story, you know, uh, a, a powerful one. Yes. And we all have our secret burdens. We all have our ring that cannot be used. We all have our mm -hmm. deep, dark problem that uh, we have to live and die with. Um, and, and so there is a cathartic value in that. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and not only the the element of suffering that can that creates the community that you're talking about, but also um, the community itself, what holds it together, what overcomes the suffering, that idea of sacrificial love, yeah. right? Uh, Which the, is as present of, in Harry yes, Potter as in Tolkien. Yes, the study of the nature of love, um, I think is what gives that particular series its teeth mm. in the end. And, um, you know, how can that be? When we look at it, it's it's shrouded in all of this darkness, mm -hmm. and it, it it lands in a particular world, imaginative though it be, that truly can't actually foster that kind of self sacrifice and real love. Well, maybe that maybe that lets us turn the question back around and say, Andrew, what do you um, when you're getting at the the maybe I could say the vehicle for the delivery of that kind of thematic content. Um, what are the dangers that you see in in that, right? The difference between the magics of Tolkien and the magics of, of Rowling, or Rowling, or however you pronounce her last name. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, I kind of getting back to that idea of the effect on the reader. Um, children and even teenagers and, and even adults to a lesser degree, but, you know, we we do transpose the story into our lives. We transpose the world to some degree. I remember as a teenager, I saw this movie Rollerball. And for some uh, reason, yes. you know, I was old. I was 14 or 15 years old. And I was thinking, I want to be that guy. You know, I'm going to walk around and pretend that I am that guy. <laughs> and so there is this very powerful attraction in the, the heroic and in the anti-heroic character. So now the question is, is that guy worth being like? <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, and then will that have any will that have any repercussions on you? One of the uh, side effects, if you will, of the Harry Potter craze was kids going into the libraries, getting books on the occult, how to do real magic, wizardry. Uh, there was a, a tremendous kind of burst of of imaginative interest in what most of us would consider objectively dangerous. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you, you can extrapolate that out. One of the the things that was reported when the Twilight series was big was um, teenagers coming into the emergency room with chunks of flesh bitten out of their neck. <laughs> you know why? Well, my my boyfriend just wanted to Ooh. show how much he loved me. You know? And so good grief. That, of course, is – well, I mean, that's not the that, – that's the exception rather than the common. <laughs> Thank goodness. But it, still ref, it still reflects the degree to which our moral imagination 
is shaped by characters and environments and stories. Sure. I wonder sure. if and this is a good place. That's an unintended consequence, right. frankly, of what Rowling was doing, because she, of course, was writing this fictional world. And, you know, certainly no one believes in wizards and witches it's... and wands. But, you know, what you're saying is those things are actually a reality. Especially for kids who don't know how to read well. Yes. Because the truth That's of the right. Harry Potter story is... It's not about the spells. No. It's about the laying down your life for your friends. Right. Really? I mean, if you, well, if you, uh, go ahead, Emily. I was going to get on a roll. Oh, no, and no, who no. knows when I would no, have please. stopped? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to add, I wonder if that's, I, one of the questions we haven't really wrapped up on the table is what, why are we so attracted to magic um, when we read? And at all this talk of sacrificial love, I wonder if one of the reasons is that we know um, it's unfortunate that kids were getting into the occult because Harry doesn't end up saving himself. Mm. Harry can't save himself. It takes something outside of himself to save him. And I wonder if as humans, we know that it's impossible physically and materially, it's impossible that we should be saved. Um, Mm. It takes magic. It Mm. takes something completely outside of this world to set things right. And we long for that. I love that. That is so well uh, said. What C.S. Lewis said are called the deeper magic. It takes deeper magic from before the the dawn dawn of time. time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that I like to see a hopeful sign, although maybe it's not hopeful, but I like to see a hopeful sign in the prevalence of, of fantasy literature, that impulse that Emily's put her finger on that we all have to look beyond the hills in the words of the psalmist from whence cometh our help mm-hmm. to not put our, our faith in our own hands to save us, but to realize that we need saving from somewhere outside, somewhere supernatural. Kind of reminds me of that Wordsworth sonnet, the world is too much with us. Mm-hmm. Um, where he's at the climactic moment in the sonnet at the turn. He says, great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn than be essentially mired in this materialistic world. Yeah. Because then at least I could see, you know, I could see the pagan gods. I could see them rising out of the sea and enacting these fabulous things. Yes. As opposed to just this dry mechanical world that I supposedly live in, you know, maybe the, the world that we live in, uh, in that way is the exception. And maybe someday there will be the, uh, the world of the fantastical elements will dominate again. Who knows if that'll be better or worse, but perhaps the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The urges of those poets and those writers, uh, speaks to something universal that we all share. And the eternal truths will always outlast the mundane entertainment story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 50, 50, 100 years from now, people will still be reading. If they're reading at all, they'll still be reading Tolkien and Lewis and Homer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably will have forgotten about Percy Jackson and Harry Potter. Yes, yeah. I think that's probably true. Or at least Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, well, Andrew, before we adjourn, uh, tell us what you do at uh, excellenceinwriting.com and how people can get involved. Yeah, well, actually, it's easier than that. It's IEW.com. Oh, so we, <laughs> sorry about that. We went ahead and <laughs> we went ahead and, and dropped the big money on the three-letter domain name. Uh, but uh, at Excellence in Writing, yeah, I, the Institute for Excellence in Writing, IEW.com, um, you know, we have a system of teaching structure and style and composition 
and we have a course that does that and it works for teachers it works for homeschool parents and tutors college students we have lots of peripheral materials to help those teachers who are implementing our system along with the early reading the primary arts of language reading primary arts of language writing we have spelling we of course uh, are very proud to be able to offer the um, center for literary education uh, <laughs> teaching the classics course uh, which is a long time ago we did that huh adam the first reason <laughs> yeah. long, long time ago it's getting older by the day andrew but, <laughs> yeah, when when I was young, you're still young, but uh, when I was young. Uh, however, um, people are welcome to head on over and, and check out the many things. Mostly, we we help parents and teachers help students learn to speak and write English skillfully. That's that's our goal. That's our mission. That's what we work towards. And part of that is, of course, understanding story, understanding the elements of narrative, understanding the process of thinking. I think that's where you and I first hit it off. And right. you said, hey, my whole approach to teaching literature is to ask questions. And your whole approach to teaching writing is to help kids learn to ask questions. So it's all about the questions. And uh, this has been fun. I've appreciated some of the questions. I, I may be thinking about some of them uh, on my drive home. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, it has been good. a pleasure having you on with us, Andrew. Thank you for agreeing to come. We really appreciate it. Anytime, Adam. Missy, God bless you. Thank you so nice much. Nice to see you young people there involved in the uh, Center for Literary Education. And, and we'll all keep up the good work and meet up on the road someday. Very that good. Look forward to speaking with you again, my friend. And that is all the time we have for Bibliophiles today. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks again to Andrew Pudawa of IEW.com for his comments. What a thrill to have him on. <laughs> uh, if you're interested in what the Center for Lit has got going on, we invite you to come by the website at www.centerforlit.com and investigate our other products and services. Uh, meanwhile, do go to iTunes and rate the podcast if you would, please. That would help us out. And I think we're going to go ahead and adjourn. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>